What would happen if we give everyone an invitation to the table, believing everybody has something to bring and every generation some wisdom to share? What would happen if the passionate people of God became known for building bridges, making connections where there were once divides? What would happen if the love of God sparks a movement, transforming our own lives, our relationships, our communities? Let's find out together. Welcome to Bridged, the podcast about connection. Welcome to Bridge, a podcast about connection. If you missed last week's podcast and you've been following us on Digging Deeper, you're probably like, what did she just say? (laughs) It looks like Stacey Martin. There's no table. There's all the things. Well, we have changed the Digging Deeper podcast. This podcast is called Bridge, a podcast about connection. And we're still going to be digging into scripture. We're still going to be digging into the weekend message, but we're going to take it one step further. We're going to take it and actually figure out what does it mean to connect to people, to connect to God, to connect to each other, uh, just in a way that makes sense for all of these great things. So today I'm very excited. So I'm the first person to do that new format. Is that what's going on? I'm disoriented <laughs> well, right now. Jason Smith was the first one last okay, week, good. but you're the first like message about scripture. Okay, here we go. I know. Yeah, Are you go. ready? Do you feel like a guinea pig? Can we take a break right now? You don't look like a guinea pig. <laughs> this is Jonathan Scott, my friend and the campus pastor here at the South Park campus. And I'm really excited that you're here because this is an unusual week. You ain't kidding. We were just talking Unbelievable. about this. Yeah. If you're listening in real time, then you're going to say, yeah, it's it's strange with this COVID-19, mm-hmm. the coronavirus outbreak. Um, if you're listening anytime in the future, you're going to come back to this and be like, yeah, that felt historic. Yeah, very much so. Unprecedented is the word that people have said. Although there have been things kind of like this in history, nothing like this with the scope of the impacts and what it's calling for each of us, um, calling for what leaders should do during this particular period. That's pretty unprecedented. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. And for churches, what's strange, has been strange for us is that the government um, indicated that any gatherings of a hundred and more needed Mm -hmm. to be canceled. So for us, that really, there's really big implications for the church. And so we went solely online this weekend, launching a new series called Trade Up, which is about the book of Mark, uh, one of the gospels. And this first message in our new series, um, and the reason we're calling it Trade Up is because we believe that God has created, um, has intended this really remarkable life for us, a dynamic life, Mm -hmm. and that we have the option to trade up to trade in the model that we currently have to have something better. And, you know, we look at our mission statement, our new mission statement here at Forest Hill, that's building bridges that connect everyone to dynamic life in Christ. Like, it's amazing that we can lean into that and this dynamic life in a time that is, I'm telling you, if this is the life, this model of life that I currently have that is filled with stress, anxiety, uncertainty, but yet God says that there's another option, Mm I want, I want that option. I want yeah, the other option. Yeah. I want the other option. Well, and consider that even when he said that during that particular period of time when it was said, there was tumultuous things that were going on, especially within the Christian community of history, persecution, transitions, refugees, all kinds of stuff that was taking place. And even in the midst of that, there's still that message of abundant life and peace that would stabilize people in the midst of great transition. I think what's so interesting is that stuff like the coronavirus does not surprise God. No. And if you look back over history, he always shows up. I mean, he always, should, like you were saying, when when he promised abundant life, dynamic life yeah. for us, mm-hmm. it wasn't because it was easy to find back then or it was easier than it is now. There were still things going on that required people to lean in. Well, I think it's important to realize that it's not only that God shows up, but he was always there. 
Now, that's something that we can take a lot of comfort in. We think that God's out there watching, and then when he sees a problem, he says, oh, time for me to go down there and do something. (laughs) No, he is always there. He is never social distancing from us Mm. in that sense. He's always Mm. with us. Well, one thing you said in the beginning of your message, you said that divine life is where the supernatural becomes natural. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've seen it on a coffee mug at Cracker Barrel, so maybe you just saw it there yeah. and like co-opted it in your yeah. message. <laughs> you, you, you're listening way too closely. That's a, that's, that's a problem there. No, it's, it's just that um, we're going to do everything we can to live life on the basis of our own resources. And quite frankly, human beings, apart from God, have done amazing things. In other words, when I say apart from God, without dependence upon him, without relying upon him. But there are several things about the abundant life that are absolutely supernatural. One of them is we get to actually commune with God. That, sometimes when we pray, it's just like, okay, we're just throwing some, you know, a, a sentence up or a request up and whatever. We're actually talking to the creator of the universe. That is the natural rhythm for a person in relationship with God. But it, it's a supernatural reality. Here's the other thing is that he actually speaks and talks back to us in ways whether it's prompting through our spirit, whether it's through the word, whether it's through counsel from other people, but that God is not silent. He's actually interacting. That's a supernatural reality that has become natural. Another example, spiritual gifting, okay? That we, and again, human beings have done amazing things. You watch any of those kinds of shows, America's Got Talent, and what else you see, all kinds of things are taking place. But in the process of actually building the kingdom, the beauty of the, the majesty of the Holy Spirit, that whenever a person's been given spiritual gifts, it is not simply that God gives them an ability, but that the Holy Spirit has chosen how he wants to manifest himself through that person in a specific way. And the fact that when we do that, we are actually able to affect a person's eternal destination, that's supernatural. And yet Jesus said, that's the mandate, make disciples. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them to obey. That is a supernatural work that's simply the natural rhythm of a person who is connected to Christ in that abundant life. It's amazing. Well, one of the things I thought about when looking looking at that sentence, I tell you what feels supernatural right now is the idea of finding peace yes. when everything is so uncertain. You know, in normal times, I think, you know, you, you, read, you read in scripture like, the peace of Christ, the peace of God. And you're like, yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, sure, I feel better when I'm connected to him. But when things are this uncertain and there is so much information, I mean, too much information, and that information only increases fear and uncertainty, the peace of Christ, Mm -hmm. the peace that God promises in a relationship with Jesus, that feels supernatural. Yeah, it does. Well, and I I, want to be honest because, I, again, I know that there are a lot of people outside of the Christian faith who would say, yes, in certain periods of my life, I've experienced peace. To what degree that is actually God or not, I'm not really sure. But the peace that is ours is not just simply peace in circumstances, but it's peace with God in circumstances. That's a big difference. In other words, it's not just... I am coming to a certain level of of mental tranquility about what's happening, but that I'm experiencing that in relationship with God. He is living and expressing and breathing that kind of peace through me. So it's not just peace that I have, but peace I have with the God who gives it to me. He's a source of that, not simply a mental adjustment of my life. So we are looking at the book of Mark, which is one of the gospels. And you said it's it's written by Mark, but it really could have been yep. Peter's firsthand account. Exactly this right. is Mark dictating what Peter experienced. And 
I think what's so interesting, I did not realize this about the book of Mark, was that you were talking about kind of the, the time period with mm-hmm. Nero, yes. what was happening. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about this, the time period in which this gospel was written. So Jesus um, resurrected, ascended right around 30 AD, a little bit after 30 AD. Uh, this gospel is probably written around 60 AD, so 30 years later. But what's been happening? So 30 years after Jesus about has resurrected. 20 to 30 years okay. after that, right. But from that period of time, there have been uh, sightings of Jesus. And at one particular point, it says in Corinthians, 500 people saw Jesus at one time as a church guy gets birth and then you've got the Pentecost that takes place which is actually 10 days after his ascension and so there is a, a vibrant growing uh, uh, understanding of who Jesus is and people that are coming to faith but there's a reaction by the by the government about that and even by the Jewish population I mean the, the Jewish leadership and so Christian Christian Christians are on the run mm. so they came from they, they, they went, went from this place of peace and oh this is amazing to realizing that there were people that now hated them and wanted to exterminate and as a matter of fact Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he was actually, what I, I say, he was actually like on a religious jihad mm. as Saul, the apostle of Saul of Tarsus against Christianity. And so all of a sudden, Christians are being displaced from their homes, displaced from their communities. They are being looked at as threats. One of the things I said was that Nero and the emperors kind of looked at Christianity as a, as a virus, as, mm. as something to be exterminated. So there was a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern, a lot of wondering, is, is this thing really real? In addition to that, there's also false teachers out there that are also spewing all kinds of false information about Jesus and getting disciples for that as well too. So it's a very tumultuous time. It's a very uncertain time. It's very unstable. And yet in the midst of that, the church continued to experience the peace of the presence of God among them. Well, I, what I love about the book of Mark, when I, I started reading the book of Mark a couple months ago, knowing that this series was coming. And the intro, you know, in a lot of Bibles, in the yeah. very first, you'll get like a synopsis. It's the Reader's Digest. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, tell me yeah, what's happening yeah. here. One of the things they talked about that's significant about the book of Mark is how fast-paced it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when you're reading it, you really are. You're like, I'm going to need a little bit more detail, Mark. Yeah. He uses a lot of words like immediately. Yep. 42 times. 42 yeah, times. 42 times that word is mentioned. I mean, it is moving quick. What What is the significance? Like, why would we choose the book of Mark to lean into when we're talking about this dynamic life? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question, especially when you consider there are four Gospels. And each of the Gospels have a different perspective. They are written for a different audience, for a different purpose. Uh, Matthew, for instance, is written to be able to try to identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah from the line of David. Luke is actually writing to a person as he's collected all these, these, these accounts because he wants this person to understand who Jesus is and the humanity of Jesus. John wants people to understand that Jesus is God. Mark comes along and he really he wants people to understand that Jesus is the servant but he gets right to it. As a matter of fact, Mark is not as descriptive about the teachings of Jesus, but about the works of Jesus. He wants the people to understand that Jesus, as the Messiah, is also one who's bringing the benefits of the kingdom. And so one of the things we realize in the book of Mark is you're going to hear him um, ex- express um, facial expressions. He's going to actually talk about facial expressions or sighs and exclamations. He's going to be more descriptive about how people respond or even how Jesus responds to what's taking place more than any of the other writers. Um, 
you're right. Matthew, Luke, and John, they started with a long kind of a prologue in some mm-hmm. cases, taking verses to get to it. We're Mark, right off the right, right off the, the bat, bat, you're like, I'm sorry. I think I just, I looked at my Bible. I'm like, did, did a page fall out? Did somehow, <laughs> yeah. did one of my children tear out a page? Because I'm, this is getting right to the business. Right. And, and, and in a sense, Mark wants to. It's the shortest of the, of the Gospels. It's uh, 16 chapters, but it's the shortest one. It's one that we believe to be the first written. But again, I, what I love about the context is Mark, his mother Mary, another Mary, um, she would have the church gather at her home. And so there were all kinds of conversations that Mark was a part of. But also, Peter took Mark under his wing. So Mark spent a lot of time listening to Peter, as well as Paul, traveling with them. He's writing these accounts. People actually believe that Mark's account was artistically written, to be able to engage quickly. And quite frankly, we can see that because of the way the action moves and how Mark doesn't spend an awful lot of time on some of those details because he's walking very, very quickly through to authenticate the nature of who Jesus was and the ministry by the things that he did. I mean, especially when we talk in this next passage, in this next chapter, the he- uh, even chapter one, the healings that took place, people, an entire village of people gathered at the door, who captures that, you know? But he was a great reporter taking from Peter's account. And that's what's important to remember. He's actually recording, inscribing what Peter said and what Peter saw. And uh, so we've got this beautiful, active, dynamic, emphatic account of the life of Jesus through Mark. So what about for people, because I've heard this before, when I have friends or I'm people who are learning about Jesus for the first time or are learning about the Bible, and they're like, okay, I get it. I get the Gospels are like four different accounts. Right. But there seems to be some discrepancies. Like, how do I know which one is true? You know, sometimes they'll say, like, the discrepancies in the Bible, if it were real, right. then there wouldn't be any discrepancies. Right. What would we say to that? Well, so, for instance, people say, okay, is Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is true? which of them are true? The answer is yes. <laughs> they all, because yes. here's the thing. There are each uh, four different writers writing from different perspectives. You can't get the full perspective of Jesus from any one of them. The truth about it is when people say that they're discrepancies, they're really not discrepancies. They're simply differences of perspective. And that's what's important to remember. Differences of perspective. You take any four reporters, ask them to write an event, and they're going to come at it from a different perspective, especially if the audience is different. The audiences were different for the people that they were writing to. Mark was writing to, to Roman Gentiles, uh, new Christians. Matthew was writing to Jews. Okay, uh, uh, Luke was writing to a particular person. That's going to come from a different perspective. So I think we've got, we've got to be very careful that what we might judge as discrepancies from our historical time frame reference is not that way from the reference of the people who actually wrote it. It's simply just a different perspective. But all four perspectives and more are needed to understand the scope and the magnitude of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, John said, look, there were many more things that Jesus did that we couldn't record. Every one of those are facets that gives us a greater sense of clarity as to who Jesus is. But we do have four incredible accounts that gives us not everything we may want to know about Jesus, but everything we need to know to be able to actually place our faith and our trust in him. So there was this author that I'd read a couple years ago that had grown up in the church and then left. She had gotten hurt by the church. She was not sure what she believed. She was not even sure if this whole Christianity thing was for her. Like, I don't know. Was I brainwashed? Was I, I don't know. But she started to lean into Jesus, just the person of Jesus. She just, she was like, okay, this, the rest of this Bible stuff, I'm not going to read it, but this, the Gospels. Okay, I'm going to lean in a little bit. Let me try to figure this whole Jesus person out. And after spending quite a bit of time studying who Jesus was, she decided, yeah, I think if if this faith is about this man, 
and his divinity, then I'm all in. Yeah. Why is it important for us to really understand who Jesus is? Um, it's interesting because I have, I have a, a really good friend of mine who actually became a Christian by reading the book of Genesis. Here's the thing. It's, it's amazing to me. There are many different avenues and roads that we can take to get to Jesus. There's not one particular, but you really can't get to the abundant life without Jesus. But the entirety of the New Testament, for instance, in the New Testament times, they didn't have Bibles. <laughs> what they had was either uh, uh, fragments of writings, of letters, but they had the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament was the n number one document that was being used to prove the claims of who Jesus Christ was. But to your question, why is it so important for us to know who Jesus is? Uh, another friend of mine asks a question on his website, who is Jesus to you? Mm. Which is a great question. Who is Jesus to you? But there's another question I think is more important. It's not just who is Jesus to you, because that makes it something that's based on me. It's who is he? Who is Jesus to Jesus? Mm -hmm. Who is Jesus to those that knew him at that particular point? Because his claims are amazing. The way that people responded to him is absolutely amazing. If we have a misunderstanding of Jesus, Jesus is the absolute, and I'll say this, the perfect representation of God. The perfect, that's what it says in Hebrews chapter one, it's what it says also in John chapter one. We have the perfect representation of God. If we miss, or if we uh, mistake, or if we are in error about our perception of who Jesus is based on what he revealed himself to be, we then have a skewed version of God, we have a skewed version of life. And even though right now they may seem very, very similar, if they're on two different tracks, at some particular point they will diverge with such an eternal chasm. And so God, in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, he comes to us in Jesus Christ to say, this is who I am. You cannot know the Father without knowing the Son. So you cannot believe in God and not believe in Jesus' divinity. Because you hear some people say that like, hey, I believe that there's a higher power. I believe that there's God. But I think Jesus was probably just like a really good person, a yeah. great teacher, a great example for how we should live, a good moral yeah. code. Yeah. Uh, respectfully, I would say to those people, if you, if you hold that conviction, you haven't read the New Testament carefully because there's no way that a person could read the Gospels themselves and come away with thinking that Jesus was just a good person. He didn't leave that option. C.S. Lewis has basically said that he, Jesus is either liar, he's either a lunatic. One person says he's either a legend or he's exactly who he said he is Lord, and we have to pursue that. Mm -hmm. There are passages in the scripture that makes it very clear who Jesus is. One of the things to look at is how did people respond to him, his claims. The early Jewish leaders, they called him a liar. They, they basically said, you're not divine. They, had, they held, and, and because of that, they put him to death. He was a blasphemer, he was a liar. They had God in front of them, and their judgment, free to make that judgment, was we don't want that. He is not who he says he is or what we think he is. He's a liar. So I would say to anybody who holds to that conviction, please read carefully the words of Jesus himself. Read carefully the words of those who were inspired by the Spirit to write about Jesus, especially in uh, the rest of the letters when Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he makes it very clear that Jesus is the invisible God made visible. Um, Peter would refer to Jesus as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So 
it's one thing to say, well, yeah, I don't really believe that he's divine. I would say, where do you get that from? Where, where, how do you come to that conclusion, especially in light of the biblical accounts of the statements that Jesus himself made or people made about Jesus? It's interesting. I've started reading in Luke 2. So I finished with Mark and now I'm moving into Luke. So today I was in Luke 2. And there were a couple different places in Luke 2 where it talks about Mary seeing something or hearing something and tucking it into her heart. And usually it's connected back to realizing that what the angel Gabriel said to her or what she knows about Old Testament prophecies is coming true. Yeah. And that really hit me in even what even in my understanding of who Jesus is. Like cuz it's confusing. Like this whole trinity thing, yeah. the like God man, I, the whole thing is strange. If I try to explain it to my kids, yeah. I stumble and I'm like, here, let's just go to the parenting podcast. Let's actually, let's call, let's call <laughs> Professor Todd. He'll have a good answer exactly for this. Right. But so, but when I read that and thought, gosh, every time, G, or every time Mary is affirmed and either what Gabriel said to her or what God has said to her or what the prophecy said, she tucks it into her heart almost as like, like something she's going to refer back to. Yeah. And I thought about, gosh, I need to do that in my own life. Yeah. Every time that I... I am confirmed that God confirms. See, I told you, I told you, you were loved. See, I told you this about myself. See, like I need to tuck it in so I can refer back to it when there are times of doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's the process of meditation. In, mm. in some cases, it's taking something and it's chewing on it more and more or treasuring. It's one of the words it says in Luke is that Mary treasured, cherished. When something powerful happens to you, you kind of put that to memory. Let me go, let me go ahead and say this, like the rich young ruler, right? when he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus basically at the end of it said, sell everything you've got to your possessions to the poor um, and then come and follow me, you'll have much riches. And he walked away. We think that that's the end of the story because there's nothing else written. I would be like, likely to think that that man was, had, was tucking some things away. Mm -hmm. He was chewing on what just happened. What did he mean? I have no idea what the end of the story is, but you can't encounter Christ in a significant way without moving away, coming away with something that is going to hit your heart. Here's one of the things I would like to encourage people to think about, and here's a bridge connection. When we come to the scriptures or when we have an experience, we're not figuring it out with our intellect alone. Mm -hmm. we, we, we think that we come to an awareness of God because we're smart enough. We're not smart enough. And by the way, your whole thing about the Trinity, I'm in the same boat too. <laughs> it's a confusing thing. Why? Because we didn't come up with it. Because it's supposed to be mysterious. It's supposed to be mysterious. So if, if the person just, I got it covered, I'm like, no, you ain't know what you're talking about. Here's the thing. When we come to the scripture, and this is, a, this is where it's supernatural. We don't come to truth on our own. Uh, even when I'm doing my quiet time, if I'm reading a particular passage and I come up with an insight, I'm like, oh, I'm brilliant. No. God is speaking. I, I, the beauty of the fact that in the regular rhythms of our life, God speaks, communicates, not in ways that we understand with human beings necessarily, but he's doing that. So Mary's situation, the richer and ruler's, my, yours, it's that we're encountering him. God is speaking to us. He's saying something to us. And I think it means that rather than just running off to the next thing, you know, we do a quiet time, check it off, and we're on our way. No, I think we need to be pondering. What did that just mean? What just happened? What did he say? What impact does that have for my life? Because it wasn't simply just something I got out of a fortune cookie. I've had quite a few fortune cookies lead me astray. I'm just, word of God, never done it. Fortune cookie, sure has. Well, and I've had a lot of fortune cookies like, they know what I'm doing, you know, that kind of thing. 
But it's the idea that God is communicating with us. And that's a beautiful, wonderful, loving reality that even that in of itself is worth our pondering and cherishing in our heart. Well, we already talked about how this first chapter in, in Mark moves quickly through significant parts of Jesus's life. Uh, his baptism, yep. this whole spirit descending on him like a dove, uh, Jesus hearing God's voice. I mean, it moves really quickly, right. but there's a very profound conversation. I'll say conversation that Jesus has with God, God as after his baptism. Mm -hmm. He hears God say, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You, you mentioned this, and it was really profound to hear you say this. You said that many people are going to hear that statement, hear God say that to Jesus, and they're not going to be able to relate. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talked about hearing that from your own parents and as a parent being able to say that to your right. son and daughter. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people who feel disconnected from God because they never felt that kind of love, parental love, here on earth from a, from a mother or father. Yeah. How would you begin to have a conversation with somebody who says, yeah, this whole Abba, Daddy, this Father image of God, like you, you pray, God, Father God, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. How would you start have that conversation with somebody? Yeah, and, and at this point, I mean, I, I ask for a lot of grace because I don't have that perspective. And so there are a lot of people that I will spend a lot, an awful lot of time listening to them first rather than telling them, here's what you need to do. I'd say, man, where are you coming from? The truth about it is every human being made in the image of God was designed for that kind of relationship with a heavenly father. All of us were made for that. But because of sin, that short-circuited that connection, it destroyed the bridge. And so we are estranged, not because God has, has rejected us, but because we've rejected him. And so we're looking for that in other people. Uh, grateful for those of us that, that have that with other parents, but grief for those who don't. I would say number one, I would, uh, I would own, I would help them to own where they are. I, I'd, I'd acknowledge, I'd affirm. Uh, there's, there's no judgment. Uh, I think that there is, there's grief. Like I said, there's sadness about that for people who said it never had that. But I would remind them that no matter how good our earthly parents were or not, that there's a God who is far greater. Take all the best parents in the world, put them all together, and God is still greater than that. And he desires a relationship with us. One of the other things, Stacey, that I'm concerned about is for those people who have a version of God as father, and it's not a really loving one. Mm -hmm. It's a punishing dad. It's a God who looks at them sternly, because some in some religious denominations, that's how it's preached, or in some churches or some preachers, they present God as that kind of a figure and so they say yeah I'm a Christian but they're afraid of God you know definitely afraid of God and he's not someone that they can feel comfortable with again I would say there are places in the in the Old and New Testament where people could, could, could say yeah there it is but there are so many places you know one of the passages we read in the prayer time last night that we had online was from Psalm 103 that talks about this God who has compassion as a father loves his children so God loves us. So I would try and in the conversation, lead a person to the reality, not of how we have created God in the image of fathers, but how God really is. And for Jonathan, oops, did I just kill something? <laughs> you're, you're good, you're good. <laughs> for Jonathan, for me, where I go to, when I'm feeling um, shame, when I'm feeling estranged, when I'm feeling as if God doesn't love me, and I deal with that a bunch, and it's not because God has done something wrong, it's just me. I go to the cross. For me, that, that, that stabilizes. That is 
the North Star for me. For any father who would do that with his own son for people who didn't deserve it, that's a love. I, I just don't understand that. And quite frankly, that Jesus would take the penalty for my sin, that he'd take upon himself the, the, everything that I deserved, it says to me an awful lot about God. And Jesus desperately wanted people to understand who and how God is. And so I take the time in a conversation to walk them through. Let's talk about who God is. Let's talk about where God fills in the gaps and even overflows those gaps, even if you had a great father or if you didn't. But he is still as high as the heavens are above the earth, his thoughts, his love, his concern for us is even greater. And for us to know that if God would sacrifice his own son for our benefit, that tells me something about the heart of that kind of God. Mm -hmm. No other religion, no other philosophy, ideology has a perfect, complete, holy, eternal being making that kind of sacrifice for us. Rather than just telling us, turn or burn, two-point sermon, <laughs> it says, no, this, this God says, you can't come to me, so I will come to you. Mm. That's the thing. The, the, the ultimate building of the bridge, God doesn't wait for us to get our part started. He comes to us, Emmanuel, right? That's Jesus' name. Yes. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's why there's a difference between John the Baptist ministry, preaching the kingdom with judgment. Jesus preached it. And yes, with authority, with power, but with love and gentleness. That's who God is. That's who God is. He's Old and New Testament. He's all of it together in ways that we can't understand, but that we desperately need. So I would lead a person, walk them through and have a conversation, questions, dialogues, doubts, whatever, but focused on, let's see, what the scripture tells us about who and how God is. Mm. Well, the next part in, in this chapter of Mark, Jesus hears from, Jesus is baptized. He hears that God loves him. And then he is immediately, yeah. immediately one of the 40 times yeah. taken into the wilderness. Driven. It's, it's actually driven. Yeah, yeah. Driven into the wilderness. Yeah. Why is it significant for us to understand that Jesus was driven into the wilderness <laughs> and then tempted and tested yeah, yeah. for 40 days? For 40 days. Um, yeah, because when I was going through the, the study, because I've seen that word over and over again, it basically doesn't mean that Jesus was, like I said, taken to the wilderness, kicking and screaming, I don't want to go, you know, yeah. just against his will. Dragging his feet. No, because yeah. here's the thing. He came to fulfill the will of the Father. But that, and especially it's Mark writing it, right? And so we get that impetuous, we get that forceful, we get that let's do it right now immediately kind of a thing. But it's important for us to realize that Jesus, at every stage along his journey, did not rely on his divine capabilities. He came to identify completely with humanity. Which I think is so comforting. That, that's actually amazing. One of my favorite passages is in Hebrews chapter 14, chapter 4, where it says, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in every way as we are. So here's the thing. We think that when we are tempted and we fall to it, Jesus looks at us and is like, that really, you disappoint me. You, that's disgusting. You shame me. I think, and again, based on what I see in scripture, I think that Jesus, sure, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we, when we sin, but I think Jesus, when we sin, can actually look at us and say, I know. I felt it. I, I, I know. I know what you're dealing with. Now, I don't know what it is to fail, 
but I know what you're dealing with. I know. Because that passage in Hebrews then says, because of that, because he is that kind of high priest who can sympathize, we can come to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy. I, I, just this past week, it hit me. To come to a throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy. No, no, no. We should come sniveling. We should come groveling. We should come on our hands and knees begging for mercy. That's not what Jesus provides for us. That high priest says, no, no, no. The whole storehouse of grace is open. So come with confidence to receive what you need because it's always on the table. There will be no shortage. You won't come to the supermarket and not find bread. <laughs> You're going to have everything you need. There's no run on grace. <laughs> Holy, this was an amazing week. That's unbelievable. But that's right. Jesus is inexhaustible in that. But for that to happen, and again, I don't, God didn't need to, but he did. He says, I love you to the point to where I will experience what you do. So, Stacy, you're right. It's extremely comforting to know that Jesus was tried and Jesus was tested, but it's also encouraging to know he didn't fail. And he gives us the ability, either if we've fallen, to get back up or to have the resources not to fail at all. So Satan was the one in the wilderness testing and tempting Jesus. Right. What's the significance first of the 40 days? Because that number 40 seems to show up a lot. Or some some version of it. Oh, yeah, sure it does. In the Old Testament, um, 40 days and 40 nights, it rained, you know, the flood. Noah, uh, 40 years in the, in the wilderness, um, fasting for Elijah for 40 days. Um, 40 days in the scripture usually um, is significant to either a time of testing, a time of trial, or a time of transition. Mm. That's when the, the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, a time of transition, usually in many cases, followed by an incredible blessing or an outpouring or a, a, a conclusion of, of, of glory. So 40 is a, ve a very significant number, time tr testing and um, transition, time of testing, trial and transition. So Satan was the one tempting and testing Jesus in the wilderness. Yes. Is Satan always the one who is tempting and trying us? Okay. So it's important to understand who Satan is. Uh -huh. Okay, um, Satan is an angel. Satan is not a god. Mm -hmm. Satan cannot occupy more than one place at a time. I think that is important it's to huge. realize no, because huge. I think I think maybe it's because I grew up in the South. The devil's everywhere. Yes, he is. That's He's right. everywhere. That's right. And so you, I mean, honestly, you do think every time something bad is happening. In all time, in all place, if my neighbor gets a flat tire, I have a kid with the flu, then Satan is working on yeah, both of us. Right, right. But you're saying because he is an angel, an angel. a fallen angel, an, exactly right. an angel who thought he was as good as God, and God said, yeah, that's not how this works. <laughs> exactly you're right. no longer part of the right. team. You're not no longer in the in, the in crowd. Right. He, he cannot do all the bad things that are happening across the world at one time. Well, let's make it very clear. God really has no equal enemy. God is creator, Satan is creation. God is the only uncreated being. So we think that, you know, God is against Satan and they're equals. They're not equal. Satan is an angel. There's no competition. So Satan is an angel, can only occupy one place at one time, but he has an amazing network. Mm. He has an amazing network of demons. Henchmen. Henchmen. You're a Marvel guy. So can I say henchmen? Yes, you, yes you can. Yeah. Very, much, very much so. So, and, and, and they're extremely organized. They're very strategic. They're very diabolical. And they've been reading our mail since we were born. They know us. Okay. They're all over the place. And so, yeah, I believe that Satan, through his network, exploits our weaknesses, 
because he knows us. Now you ask the question, is Satan always the one that's tempting us? There's a certain sense to where I'll say, Yes, and also he is, through his network, is able to exploit that. But James says that sometimes the sin that we commit is birthed with an illicit desire. In other words, there is already something in us that is inclined to depravity. Mm-hmm. There's always something that's in us that's inclined towards rebellion, doing our own thing. That desire, because we have a sin nature, Satan, through his henchmen, <laughs> knows how to exploit that. But sometimes we have the desire. I don't know sometimes that it's always somebody speaking in my ear saying, you want to do this. Sometimes it's just something that's already in there. Um, babies, I don't know that babies understand, you know, Satan's voice, but babies can be real selfish. Oh, per reach, per reach. I'm gonna have a blog post about that at some point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I think that's just an aspect of human nature fallen from God. We're inclined, that's a gravitational, I call it the gravity of depravity, right? Mm-hmm. We all have that, we're all, susceptible to that. We've all been infected, right? Uh, and we can't get better by ourselves. Satan knows that and he exploits it. Yes, sometimes it's direct. So when people say, you know, people say that uh, Satan's, Satan's uh, working on them, I, I basically tell people, I'm not, in, I'm not important enough for Satan to work on. He can work on he, a whole lot of other people. He can send some of the weakest of his henchmen to mess with me because of the prominence that he has. But yeah, all of us are susceptible to demonic forces, all of us are susceptible to major three forces that are against us. It's the world that's around us. It's the system is broken. We know that. Not only did what's happening here, what's happening right now is simply just a magnification of the brokenness in our world system against God. We've got the sin that's within us, the danger and the fallenness that's within us, but then we've also got an enemy that is against us. The name for Satan is one who opposes. He always opposed Jesus. He will always oppose us. And we live in that real world of opposition from satanic forces. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't prepare you for. Okay. So you get veto chance. If I say it, just say, you know, I'm going to get back to you. We're going to take a break. <laughs> so with this coronavirus, I think some people will look at it as spiritual warfare. Did Satan create the coronavirus to destroy us? Is the coronavirus a symptom of just a broken world that started back in the Garden of Eden when Eve made a decision to try to have as much wisdom as God. Did, what, when things like this happen in the world, is it, is it a battle against light and dark for us Christians, a battle of good versus evil? Is it, what is this? Okay. Is the coronavirus something that Satan created? The answer to that question, from my philosophical understanding, from everything I've read, I don't know. <laughs> because I wasn't, I was Solid answer. <laughs> I think that's a solid answer. I don't know. Um, the, the tr- I, I believe it, it, there's a combination of both, but I, I, I don't know because I wasn't there when it actually took place. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, spew ignorance. But also, I think it's important for people to hear you as a pastor and as a Christian say, I don't know. Yeah. And it's okay to yeah. not know. I'm, I'm okay with not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> Gives me a whole lot less trouble. The, the, the truth about it is, is that this world is broken in ways we don't even understand. When we rebelled against God in the garden. It, it's like a Pandora's box that's affected things even at the molecular level and as a macrocosmic level in the universe. So there's so much wrong in creation because of that. Um, but strains of virus, okay, so did, did Satan create cancer? Did Satan create the common cold? <laughs> did Satan create car accidents? Um, 
all of those things are a result of the fall. I think that I do believe that some of that can be behind things behind it, but I don't know for sure. But I do think that what we're experiencing is we're experiencing the results of a world that is in rebellion against God, that has fallen from God's intended purpose. And so guess what? When we say no to God, one person said that there are two kinds of people. There's people to whom they say to God, God, your will be done. And there's people who God says to them, your will be done. And that when we walk away from God, we get the privilege of experiencing the consequences of that choice. Mm -hmm. And many of us know that sometimes the decision I made today, there are unintended consequences of that further down the road. Mm -hmm. And so we see that in every strata of human existence, in nature, in the cosmos as well too, but also in the area of the, the molecular. Um, so I think that that's a part of the issue is we've got new strains of stuff that's coming up all the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that even what's taking place in the world before the coronavirus, there were people, thousands and thousands of people that were dying from, whether it's hunger, starvation, or microbes, E. coli, those kinds of things. And so I, I tend to be very cautious about looking for a demon behind every bush. Mm -hmm. I'm cautious about that because that can actually sometimes alleviate our responsibility <laughs> to certain things rather than the devil made me do it. Yeah. No, sometimes it's us. Mm -hmm. It's us. But again, I do believe that Satan exploits. Yeah. I believe he entices. I believe he exploits. I believe he is at the cause of many things that go wrong. But I believe that humanity also has to take responsibility for the ways that we are unkind, that we are manipulative, that we actually um, contribute to the chaos in our world. Yeah. Well, one of the ways or the way that Jesus um, fought this temptation and this testing yeah. in the wilderness was with Scripture was actually with the word of God. And a lot of times Satan will will try to pervert scripture to like get you so close. Like he did that with Jesus. Yeah, God said, yeah, God exactly. said yeah, this. Yeah, and yeah, Jesus yeah. is like, yeah, not, no, actually he didn't say that. Yeah. You're close, but you're not quite there. Mm -hmm. You talked about scripture being a tool that we can use mm -hmm. as a weapon in our own lives yes. for things. And I, you know, and I look at this time right now with the coronavirus, how can we use scripture as a tool against anxiety and fear? Yeah. Well, I, I definitely think that there are two major um, practices, disciplines for, for that. Um, memorization, memorizing scripture, and meditation, which is another form of memorization or vice versa. But in other words, I don't, I don't think it's just reading it that's enough. Uh, one person actually said that sometimes reading scripture is like pouring water on concrete. Okay. Interesting. Whereas meditation is pouring water on soil. It's got to get in. It's got to be the storing up those things. Right. So sometimes people look at scripture as something you just read like a fortune cookie and you're on your way, but it's not really gotten anywhere deep. So I definitely think memorizing scripture and memorizing it exactly as it is. Uh, when I was a kid, I was on a quiz team. All right. Did, did quiz team and we had to memorize the book of Galatians. So we, we could any question that would be answered, we'd be up off our hot seats. And, uh, and was this like Christian Double Dare? Like, did you get slimed if you got it wrong? Or <laughs> We weren't sophisticated that way in the little small church that we were in at that particular point. But here's the thing. What I ended up with is that later on when I would be um, praying, Scripture would just come up in my prayers because of, because of the memory. In other words, it was an opportunity to be able to use the particular Scripture in the right place. So memorization, meditation, I believe, are absolutely important for us to be able to grasp the truth of scripture and use it and wield it properly like the sword of the spirit that it is. It's truth. One of the scriptures, for instance, in this particular time, I would say Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. And it starts off with, and I love the fact that it starts off with rather than six, I'll get to that in a second. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. 
Now, here's the thing. You don't just say, okay, that's a really nice saying. No, it's actually saying, do this. It's a, it's, it's a command. Always. Always. Rejoice in the Lord. That's different. You see what we're doing? We're actually taking the words and saying, okay, rejoice. What does that mean? Okay, it means I got to be happy. I got to be joyful. I got to change my attitude in the Lord. So it's not just rejoicing just to be happy. No, that he's the source of that. Always. You just mentioned that word. We take every one of those words. We're chewing on it. What does that mean? And here's the thing. When we actually chew on the word in meditation, it transforms our pattern of thinking and therefore our way of behaving. If I say, okay, Lord, whatever you show me in the scripture, give me the strength to understand it and then to do it, rather than just, okay, I'm just going to read and get on my way. So rejoice in the Lord always. I got to make a choice about how I'm going to face this particular situation. I got to make a choice that even though there's reality here. It's it's not good in many cases. It's not good. And I, I can say, okay, I'm sad about this. I'm grieved about this. But, see, but in the Lord, even with tears, even in cases with broken hearts, I can still rejoice in the Lord because of his promises. Then it says, let your gentleness be evident to all. This is verse five. The Lord is near. Yeah, I know, right? Mm -hmm. So rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I love that. Again, I say rejoice. And you missed it the first time, but then verse five, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then of course it goes into the fact that it says, do not be anxious for a few things, for some things. No, it says, do not be anxious about anything. Now. Before you get on to the next verse, think about that for a second. That's what we're doing in meditation. And, we, and at that point, have a conversation with God. God, how in the world am I supposed to not be anxious about anything? Because you, do you see what's going on in my meditation? I'm having those conversations with God. You know what I'm doing? I'm meditating. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this through. I'm not just taking it. I'm actually having the conversation. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Stop there for a second. What's happening right now? What was going on in my business? What was going on in my family? That's part of the everything. In everything, by prayer and supplication, in other words, by prayer and, and actually asking, requesting for God, with thanksgiving. There's another one. Do you see what we're doing? Yes. That kind of process, it begins to sift into your soul, the soil of your soul. And you walk away in that process with a different perspective. With thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends, passes, all understanding, even mine. I don't understand what's going on, but I don't have to understand what's going on to know peace. And it says that that peace will guard my heart in Christ Jesus, a sentinel. And so I definitely think that there are so many powerful scriptures. One of them, again, is Psalm 46 that talks about the tumult in the world, but then verse 10, after all the catastrophe stuff, desolation, it says, be still and know that I am God. That's a choice I make. You know, it's a mm -hmm. choice. It's not just uh, uh, just a wave of euphoria. No, I have to make a choice in the midst of the catastrophe that's going on around me to stop striving stop trying to control the outcome. That's what scripture does for me. When I read through it and I meditate on it, I, I'm chewing on it. I'm trying to readjust my mind and my perspective to what God is saying that allows me to be an expression or extension of grace, mercy, peace in my life in current circumstances right now.
Mm. That's powerful. It is for me. I read an article uh, just this week that was talking about how there was a a recent scientific study that came out that talked about the power of positive Uh, thinking and that it actually has health benefits that can increase your immune system. So this Christian writer was talking about, it's either in Psalms or Proverb, uh, about a merry mind is good medicine for the soul. Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's not that's like not even the message version. That's like the Martin version. And it is not accurate. The Stacey Martin version. But they were talking about how the value of 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 scripture, of putting it in your of transforming your mind and relying on it for the peace of Christ. Like you were just talking about actually has health implications for lowering your cortisol levels, Mm -hmm. which are a hormone that not only gives you belly fat, which I think I I think I have it. I think I've got the cortisol levels, but it also it it um, it lowers your immune response. So if you think about in this in this time where we're worried about the coronavirus, we're worried about flu. I mean, all these things. Imagine how God has wired us so perfectly and created our bodies so intricately that meditating on his promises can actually boost our immune systems and increase our the benefit of our health. Like that's a god that doesn't just say, "Hey, I created this to look good on a coffee mug." Like that what that's a go. that's some good Very poetry. Good. That's good. I love that. He has done it so it actually transcends, it transforms our minds, which then it transforms our hearts, which transforms our bodies. All of it is so intricately connected. Yeah, very much so. And and the two easy ways to tap into it are memorization and meditation. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The promises that we have of being able to participate in the divine nature are through our knowledge of the Son of God. And that's just not science knowledge. It's experiential knowledge as well, too. But yeah, Scripture is not simply just a great collection of wonderful sayings and and proverbs. It is the inspired Word of God that can actually, when we ingest it, digest it, meditate on it, it can perform the work of transforming us and making us more than enough for whatever that we face. Why? Because we just got smarter? No. The written word is connected to the living word. Mm. So when we take that word in, we are in a sense magnifying the presence and the power of Jesus Christ himself. And that is where the supernatural becomes natural. Mm. Would you pray scripture over us as we uh, end this podcast? I would love it. For all of our listeners, would you pray for us? Um, and pray a verse over us at, and during these uncertain times. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I'm going to pray from Ephesians. Y'all, he's actually got a book with pages and paper. Look at that. Look at that. This is... I'm going old school. We're taking it back. Social distancing. We're, you know, we're all boiling water over here. And, yeah. But yeah, if you would, because I think there's something powerful in ending this scripture or ending this time together. But uh, you praying the scriptures over us as we go out into the world, as we're building bridges, but as we're just in uncertain times. Absolutely. And hopefully this is not going to be an hour prayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it is, it is the spirit. <laughs> exactly I mean, right. what do we do? But the, the reason I, I chose this particular scripture is because this was a scripture that I had a preacher. I was watching a preacher on TV. He was using this scripture and it ministered to me when I was in the midst of my dark time, in the midst of, of uncertainty, in the midst of, 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 of tragedy. And this scripture came alive in a powerful way. So if you want to, you want to take a look at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to kind of focus on a, on a part. Thank you. Because actually, it's a prayer. 
Paul is actually praying this particular scripture for the Ephesians, and therefore it's applicable to us as well. Great, thank you. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Jesus right now, there are all kinds of other roommates in our psyche that are creating havoc. But I pray, oh God, that you'd help us to allow you to have authority in our life, that you would be at home in us so we could be at home in you. Father, I pray that you would continue the ministry of rooting us and establishing us in love. The world right now seeks to establish us in chaos. We're inundated by information, by worries and concerns. We're waiting for the next word that's going to come. Lord, I pray that you would help us to make the choice that our lives would be rooted and established, not by what's happening around us, but by the love that transcends our circumstances, a love that's being poured out for us. God, give us the power, together with all the saints, to grasp every dimension of your amazing love. How wide and long and high and deep is that love of Christ? And the Lord, we would know personally, we would know experientially, we would know transformationally, this love that surpasses knowledge. God, please, I pray that in the midst of this crisis, that you would fill us to the measure of your fullness. Right now, like I said, we're being filled with emptiness. We're being filled with all kinds of information that fertilizes anxiety. But Lord, to be filled to the measure of your fullness, God, that is what you want for us and what we desperately hunger for. So Jesus, do that work in us, establishing us in you, so that we will be able to proclaim at the end of this prayer that Paul did, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to your power at work in us. Father, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much. Oh, my, my I'm so glad you were here today. Join us next week. We're going to be looking at the next part in our series, Trade Up leaning into the dynamic life of Christ. And I'm sure as is week two in this kind of coronavirus thing, we're gonna be talking more about what does it look like to build bridges to the people around us, to care for our community, but also to kind of deal with these uncertain times. So I hope you'll join us. Thanks so much. Have a great week.